This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. Alrighty, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, we welcome you here. Um, if you're new, I think we still got a little pile of note-taking material, if you wish. Uh, kind of right on that side chair. Yeah, there you go. So it's just got a little map of the sanctuary and a bunch of lines, but if you want something to help you take notes, uh, <coughs> that would be good. So I think most people got it yesterday, but uh, just in case, we'll let you know. Alrighty, let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this new day of life, for the sunshine outside. And as we dig now into the Day of Atonement, speak to our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today and Sabbath afternoon, I'm going to be working angles of the Day of Atonement. And um, I had planned to work on Achan on Sabbath afternoon, but I may bring him in more today and do something else. The Holy Spirit's working with me, and I'm trying to decide exactly where to go here. Um, but let's do this today. We've been in the holy place the daily ministry of confession, of dependence on God, of renouncing sin and being cleansed, etc., etc. But the question is, does God just, you know, have an unending process or is he going to bring this problem to a resolution and get it over with? And the Day of Atonement brings us to a second aspect of the sanctuary ministry, which involves judgment. Now, I want to hasten to add before I forget that the daily sacrifice could still happen on the Day of Atonement. If you remember to sin at the last minute, you could still come and confess. So the Day of Atonement does not exclude the daily ministry that we've been studying, rather it adds to it. It, it brings an, an extra dimension, but the ministry of forgiveness continues during the judgment. It's not that the ministry of forgiveness ends and the judgment begins, but the judgment begins while the ministry of forgiveness is still in progress. And so the most holy place adds a dimension. It doesn't remove the holy place ministry, which is good news. And so our focus today, thus, is this addition. Now, the most holy place was prescribed as its sole use was on the Day of Atonement. However, when we read Leviticus 16, verses 1 to 2, where shortly after the Nadab and Abihu deaths, and the Lord commands Moses to Aaron, tell Aaron, when you go to minister before the Lord, don't always go into the holiest, most holy place. Stay out at the golden altar kind of a thing. And so it suggests that when they first erected the tent and started the ministry of forgiveness, they were apparently going right up to the most the mercy seat. And Nadab and Abihu go all the way in and they don't follow the protocol and it turned out not to be safe for them, right? God's glory comes out. And, uh, and again, I would say you have language there suggesting observation because they were literally, quote, to the face of God which means God can see, and God reacts to what he sees. This is investigation followed by judgment. You have investigative judgment there in this death. And, and so uh, God says, no, 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 save this room for this special day of the year. 
And hence now that two-part ministry where the forgiveness happens at the golden altar when the priest ministers the blood in the most holy place. Now the only piece of furniture in the room is the ark, but again we've already seen the close ties to the altar of incense, so I don't need to go there. Exodus 25 verses 10 to 22 gives us a basic description of the ark, this box, a chest with the poles and the mercy seat, a very interesting term for the uh, the seat. Remember in other temples of the day they had the equivalent of an ark too with the angelic covering type cherubs. What's different between this ark and their ark? You're on the right track but how would you nuance that? What's the difference between God's there, and there, God's there. The Shekinah was what? That's new. On what kind of presence? Visible presence. Most of the other gods, you put the idol of your god on that seat in between the cherub, because this is his throne but we don't make a visual representation of God, right? So the Israelite ark is unique in that there's nothing there because God is invisible. You can't make a carving of him. But the Shekinah, God would appear as a light over that mercy seat where the God sat on his throne uh, for Israel. Now, I don't think that light was visible all the time, because we have record of that light being brighter and dimmer. You know, when Solomon dedicates the temple, the light got so bright that the priest had to go out into the court because even the holy place got too bright, too difficult for them, right? And so I suspect that there were times where the Shekinah backed off so that people could go in and dust and clean and do basic janitorial services. But, um, but when you were in the worship mode, that was where the deity sat on his throne, but instead of an idol, you have the Shekinah. You're approaching God. Some people have tried to also associate the throne of God with the table of showbread, but I have difficulty with that. Um, yes, God's throne is in the sides of the north in Isaiah, but there's nothing that happens with that table that would suggest the ruler, you know, etc. Whereas the ark has the law of God showing the seat of his policy, the seat of his government, right? You know, etc. And it had the memorials of his leading with Aaron's rod and the manna housed in the ark as well, which kind of points us back to the dependence and the guidance that we had in the holy place through the bread and the lamp. Now you have the manna in the jar. Again, God's your dependence and God's sustenance and miraculous care. And you have the rod where God guided them in choosing the high priest. And so with the seat of government there, to remind us of how holy God is and how unholy we are, you weren't supposed to touch the ark. Hence the poles, right? So that you could carry it without touching it. And I've already talked about the contents. And I find it very interesting that the mercy seat where the blood was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement covers the law. Because the word for atonement in Hebrew is literally to cover, to cover over, kafar. Yom Kippur, the day of covering. 
So we cover it over, wipe it clean, kind of a language. And so the mercy seat, the seat of mercy, tells us about a God who sits on the throne who wants to act mercifully, but who recognizes he's got a rebellion that doesn't want, that rebels against mercy. And there's a point where if you don't want mercy, you're so much a danger to everything else, we got to do something about it, right? And so it is the seat of judgment, but it is the seat of mercy. God's orientation is favorable to man, not hostile to man. He wants to save people. Those who persist in rebellion, yes, he's not afraid to be strong and deal with them. But his joy is in saving, not in punishing. He's not afraid of punishing. It's a necessary duty that comes with rulership. So I think that by naming this the mercy seat, you have this strong hint to remind us that even as we approach judgment, we're approaching a merciful God, not a mean God. Now again, the focal point of God's presence with the Shekinah glory. Don't touch it again in Numbers 4. And we have this story of Uzzah, who touches the ark in 2 Samuel, right? And in fact, this piece of furniture is called most holy. Now let's think about Uzzah's experience, a little, a little tangent here. Why did Uzzah touch the ark? Because he thought it was afraid it was going to fall over. What caused the ark to be in a position where Uzzah would be afraid for it to fall over. It was on an ox cart. Why was it on an ox cart? You're half right. Remember that the Philistines sent it on an ox cart and then it spent, what, a year or two at this guy's house. And now they're going to move the ark up to Jerusalem and so what did the Israelites do? They hitched up the oxen and they started to go. What's the problem? They should have known that the ark was supposed to be carried. Had they been carrying the ark by God's appointed way, he wouldn't have had the temptation for it to fall off the ark, of the ox cart. So why do Philistines get away with using an ox cart? God winks at ignorance. Remember, they did an experiment, right? We don't know if these plagues are from God, so let's put this on a cart, put two nursing cows on it, and if the nursing cows abandon their babies and head to Israel, we know this is not a chance, this is Yahweh at work. And these two milk cows abandon the babies and take off, and God took care of his own ark based on ignorance. Uzzah apparently doesn't trust that God could care for his own ark, even though it made it many miles from f over here to over here, right? And then after Uzzah's death, David said, you know, we need to do this God's way. And then he got the poles and, and a problem. But that reminds us, see, of the approaching God without the right protocol. without faith, with distrust, with etc. It's not that God is vengeful, but sinners can't survive his presence. He had to do like the bubble boy, right? He's got to do something to make himself approachable to us. Now, in my estimation, the Day of Atonement thus, with this other experience on the negative side, The Day of Atonement is a very solemn day. And if we go to Isaiah 6 in that great vision of Isaiah, if you have your Bibles, let's go there. 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I the Lord, saw the Lord, this is Isaiah, it's talking, saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, and he describes the seraphims, uh, the seraphim, I should say, there's no S there. And uh, we get to, you have this, all the description of the awe and grandeur. And you get to verse 5, and what was Isaiah's reaction? Whoa, is me. I'm undone. Now, who is Isaiah? This is a prophet of the Lord. He's already been having visions for five chapters. This is a man who's fundamentally in right relationship with God. And when he got a dose of God on the throne, what was his reaction? Whoa. I'm hopeless. I need help. And God went to the altar, well, the angel, touched his lips with the coal and says, I'll clean you. The daily service makes it easy to focus on God as my friend. The danger of that is that we get casual with God and forget the bigness. And the Day of Atonement was a day to set you back and put you in Isaiah's shoes and say, whoa. Let me not forget how holy he is and how desperate I am. And I think that we've lost a lot of reverence for God because we've lost that sense of awe and mystery. And God has become familiar. And when I lecture on the Ten Commandments, I talk from the Second Commandment about God having a right to mystery. That's why we don't make idols of him. And the great error of humankind throughout the ages is we try to demystify God. And once we demystify God, he becomes, we have almost a sense of controllability. In our archaeology museum, well, right now we have a rotating display, but most of the year we have a little section that shows some of the idols we've dug up. Remember how Rachel hid the idols in the saddle and sat on them? Now, see, when I thought of idols, you know, I was thinking of... No, they're smaller than my Swiss Army knife. They easily fit in your shirt pocket. And you pull your idol out of your shirt pocket and you can. When we think that we've figured out God and we lose that awe and mystery, we start to relate to God this way instead of recognizing who he is. Day of Atonement helped reinforce that sense of the high and lifted up of Isaiah. Because this was the day, as we will see, this was the day that determined if you remained in the covenant community. So your future is at stake. Okay. And so I think Isaiah's experience here captures that sense of Leviticus 23 where it says they were to afflict their souls. And I think Isaiah is having a Day of Atonement type of experience. I don't know that Isaiah is in the Day of Atonement, but he's having a Day of Atonement-like experience. And I think that gives us a clue as to what this sense of affliction is about. And I know 
that now that I've gotten a little more mature and I marvel at how God blesses me in spite of myself, how I've come to realize how desperate my condition, condition is. You know, when you're young and full of vigor and energy, you feel a little more invincible. And the older you get, the more you recognize your true condition and how much you need the grace of God. And so this captures that sense to me. Now let's review, and I'm not going to read this, but um, I'm going to review here the basic elements of uh, the Yom Kippur. Yom in Hebrew is day, and Kippur comes from Kafar, the day of atoning or covering. And there are two chapters in Leviticus that talk about the day of atonement. Most of chapters, well, all of chapter 16 and a portion of Leviticus 23. And so the basic ritual of the day is chapter 16. And the talk about afflicting our souls is chapter 23. Let's look, uh, first of all, I want to go back to Leviticus 10 because I want to review an important principle. And so if we go back to Leviticus 10, waiting for the iPad to catch up with me here. This is in the context of Nadab and Abihu, and Moses was mad because the sin offering was burnt without the blood being taken into the holy place nor had the priest eaten the piece of it. And so Moses is challenging Aaron, why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy, and it has been given to you that you may bear or carry the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement before the Lord. Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it. And I review that text because through eating the meat or through carrying the blood, the priest becomes the transporter of the sin that was separated from the sinner to take it to God for dealing with. And this becomes a major part of the Day of Atonement service. And the ritual is broken down conceptually into two parts. The priest had to offer a sin offering for himself and the priestly family, you know, all the priests, and go do the Day of Atonement ceremony for the priests. And once the priest's Day of Atonement was taken care of, now he can represent the people and do it all over again. And so as I recall, the sin offering for the priests and the priestly family was a bull. And so in verse 6, he starts with the priestly family, about slaughtering the bull, etc. Then he comes to verse 7 to 10, and you're going to do it with the goat for the people. And then you come back to 11 to 14 where he goes into the most holy place to do for the priest. And then in 15 and following, he now goes in for the people. But it's clear that they do the priestly part first and then the people part second. But he starts by kind of the one sacrifice, the other sacrifice, the one ministry, the other ministry. And so he alternates back and forth um, between the two. Now, Christ doesn't need to do this double dip because he never sinned. You know, the earthly priests were sinners, so God had to have a little extra here uh, for them. So our focus tends to be on the congregational aspect of the ritual. And that part focuses on the two goats. The two goats become the centerpiece of the Day of Atonement. The Lord's goat 
and the scapegoat, or Azazel's goat. And they were selected by casting lots. Why? There's a big lesson here, folks. Can man determine, several lessons here, can man determine which is the Lord's goat and which is Satan's goat? Needs outside help, right? And I'll work backwards. We also, it was not left to man's imagining to figure out which one was which, right? So we go back to that earlier theme about why did God have so many gory details in the sanctuary? To remind us that the plan of salvation is not something we contribute details to. We receive it as given. We submit to that. And so we don't get to pick the goat. God does. But secondly, it suggests to me that without divine aid, I'm not going to know who the right Messiah is. Have you noticed in the Bible who is the lion? Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, but isn't there another lion? Seeking whom he may devour. Jesus and Satan both are symbolized by lion. Who's the bright and morning star? Or who's the morning star? But isn't it also used of Jesus? Right? So they both have this morning star title, right? You can go on. I'll do one more. Jesus is the Lamb of God. What is Satan? He's a wolf, but how does he disguise himself? In lamb's clothing, sheep clothing. How do you know which is the right morning star? Which is the right lion? Satan is trying to usurp Christ's position in the divine economy. Well, he was. When the father went and let it, he says, Fooey, I'm going to take your position too, you know. And so it's no accident that Satan adopts all the symbols of Christ to himself. And Paul says he comes as an angel of what? Light. He doesn't come looking like a demon. And so if I don't have God's help, I can't tell if this is a sheep or a wolf in sheep's clothing. I can't tell if it's the right morning star or the wrong morning star. I can't tell if it's the right lion or the wrong lion. Because they both look like lions to me. And because Satan disguises himself as the son of God, basically, we now have two players brought. And Israel said, look, you need help so you know which is the right one. You can't trust your own judgment on this one to figure out the right Messiah. You need to be shown who the right Savior is. I think very, very crucial, right? Two goats look like identical twins, maybe. We can't tell who is who without God's help. And so they're selected by this casting of lots, which was understood as a divinely guided process. And when the goat was selected, Aaron, the high priest, now takes a full bath, unlike the daily service where they washed their hands and feet. So stronger emphasis, deeper cleansing theme, etc. And now the first goat in the process is the Lord's goat, and this is the one sacrificed as a sin offering. 
which is followed by a blood ceremony at the mercy seat, not at the golden altar. Now usually, the sin offering, we have a confession of sin. The sin is transferred to the sin offering, and through the blood, the sins are brought into the sanctuary. Here we have no record of a confession. The blood, the goat is slain, and the blood is taken in. We're not transporting anything. Now he has a sprinkling ritual on the most, on that mercy seat. They put the censer on the seat the way they put a sprinkle into the censer. By the way, the censer was the first thing. They lifted the veil and you stick the smoke and let it go a while to knock down the brightness of the Shekinah before you go under the veil, right? But then you set it on the mercy seat and then at the right time you sprinkle this blood and then you came out um, through the holy place and you had blood ritual involving each piece of furnishing in the holy place. And while this is happening during that particular ceremony, no one can go in, just a high priest. And of course, tradition had it, but partly based on Nadab and Abihu's experience. Uh, if the priest gets toasted like Nadab and Abihu, how do we recover the body? Are you going to go in after it? <laughs> right? Hence the tradition in Jewish lore that they tied a rope to the priest's foot as if something went wrong they could haul him out, you know. Uh, now if you're the high priest, doesn't that add, if you're dragging a rope behind you, a little bit of solemnity to the occasion? Yeah. So he cleanses, he does these blood rituals to literally to set right. The uh, cleansing is a King James language. Um, Sadak, to make uh, legitimate, to restore, to honor, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, you work backwards. You start in the most, uh, to the approach to God, right? We start at the gate. He starts now in the most holy place and works his way out with the blood, quote, cleansing. And now when he gets out, notice it's cleansed of what? the uncleanness of the people, hence the idea of cleansing. And he comes out all this stuff, and now, folks, we get the most important verse in the passage. When he has made an end of atoning. This is very, very important, and we'll see why. But the first aspect is right here. Once he does the Lord's goat blood and comes out, 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 boom. The atonement is done. The sanctuary is cleansed, but the ceremony is not over. Because we now go to the scapegoat, right? And now what does he do over the scapegoat? He puts his hands and he confesses all of the sins of Israel that had been taken into the sanctuary are now in figure brought out. See, before we cleansed and we, we confessed and we used the blood to transport in. Now we take the undefiled in, blood in, and we use it to transport the stuff back out. And it's now transported from the sin offering to the scapegoat. And confession is made. All the stuff that's in there, now it's on you. And because of that, Non-Avenist, and I remember as a young pastor, I broke in during the Desmond Ford brouhaha. And we got a couple of people here old enough to remember that. 
and my elder of my company, technically we called him a leader, the leader of my company was in the Desmond Ford and he was arguing that the scapegoat was Christ, not Satan the way Ellen White and Adventists have taught. Because otherwise you're teaching salvation through the devil. The devil saves us by bearing our sins. I've gotten that one in Bible studies too, right? My estimation is the scapegoat cannot be Christ because whatever this bearing of sin is, it has nothing to do with atonement. And I'm jumping ahead of myself here because the atonement is already done. So Christ can't be the scapegoat because the scapegoat is A, it's not sacrificed, right? It's never offered as a sacrifice. And the scapegoat does not begin its work until the atonement is already finished. So this is something else. So I don't see how that works for Christ. And hence, I've had people challenge me thus, because Ellen White talks about the devil, quote, bearing in the sense of carrying our sins. See, you believe in salvation through the devil, not through Christ. But again, this is impossible because the scapegoat plays no role in making atonement. It's something else. So what's the meaning of the scapegoat? Aaron lays both hands and confesses all the sins of Israel. So it's blatantly clear that we have a transfer of sin here. And it's on this goat and it's left there. And then, quote, a strong man, not the priest, interestingly, takes the goat to the wilderness, way out into the wilderness. The idea is that the goat... Now think a little carefully here. What's the point of taking the goat to the wilderness? Yeah, where no man is, what else? Say again. Can't come back. Why? That's what we like to say is too far. You don't understand desert goats. What's the real issue? What's the danger of being outside the camp? And without protection of the community. What happens to a goat alone in the wilderness? Easy prey for the lion. This goat is going to die. That's the whole point. He will die out there and never come back because you have pushed him out into a hostile world with no protection. The bear or the lion or something, you know, the hyena, something's going to get it, you know. Because there's no herd, there's no community, there's no protection. It's going to die. So it was implicit. See, likewise, if you were cut off from the camp, you're a Jew. You're thrown out into the wilderness. You're no longer part of our campment. Who's going to take you in? You're alone. You're unprotected. At best, if you're lucky... Somebody will capture you and make them their slave. Otherwise, you might end up one-on-one -on -one with a lion yourself, right? So to be cut off from the community is a death sentence because there's no protection. And so he's taken out. Later Jewish tradition capitalizes on this. And they would take the, coat, the goat to a precipice and push him so he go splat and be injured enough not to move and then either dies from the impact or the eagles come and get him or whatever. Uh, then the strong man returns and does a purification ritual. Aaron bathes again, even though he had nothing to do with this particular ceremony. Someone burns the remains of the Lord's goat, then purifies himself, and finally we're done. 
So why do we have the scapegoat? Some almost treat this as a double jeopardy. It's like you were forgiven, but not quite. And so, you know, you have to go through this process again. And uh, the devil, salvation to devil, all this stuff goes on. And I think we've missed a point. Psalm 73 is an interesting commentary that I think sheds light. And let's go to Psalm 73. Some see the scapegoat as a way of almost saying like, you were forgiven, whoop, but you're not really forgiven. You've got to go through it again. Whoop, you're not really forgiven. They said there's no assurance of salvation in such a teaching. You know. I think we've missed the point. Psalm 73, David is complaining to God about why the wicked prosper. And they're sitting fat in their beds and the righteous are suffering there seems to be an inversion of justice in the world. And he says, basically, that he was tempted. Verse 13, all in vain I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning, while the wicked are all fat and comfortable. Then he said, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, that is this problem of why the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, and justice doesn't seem to be happening, it seemed a wearisome task to me until I went to the sanctuary of God and discerned their destiny. What in the sanctuary depicts the destiny of the wicked? When everything's about purification. Only thing I can see is a scapegoat. I think it's the Day of Atonement that gave David hope that the rights would be wronged and justice would be restored. And he said, Life doesn't make sense. I'm doing good and I'm getting killed and these people are doing evil and they're prospering. What's wrong, Lord? Oh, I see. In the end, they're going to get held accountable. There is a judgment. Not only in the scapegoat, but in the penalty of those who don't afflict their souls, what happens? They're cut off from the congregation. So we see a destiny of the wicked between the scapegoat and the cutting off of the people, they basically get to join the scapegoat, right? Go out in the wilderness. You're out of here. So we come now to the question. Our pioneers like to talk about sin being forgiven but not blotted out. And that makes people nervous, you know, the double jeopardy issue, right? Hence the idea of, well, you're forgiven, but not really forgiven. And we have some challenging quotes from Ellen White that I'll bring in a little later if we have time. And we'll see how it goes. I go back, we have two goats. Why do we have two goats? The Lord's goat stands for whom? For Christ. And Christ stands for whom? Me. Right? He's my substitute, right? So if there's no Lord's goat, it's me standing there and a scapegoat. What's that tell us? It tells us that every time sin is committed, more than one party is involved. There's the devil who incited me to that sin, and there's me who yielded to that incitement, right? 
Now, if I make an analogy on the campus, if we have a professor and there's a student, let's say a female student with a male professor, and she's struggling you know, financially, she's trying to work 40 hours a week, go to school full time, and she's struggling in class and she comes to the professor, you know, look, I'm really trying, but I'm in trouble. And the professor says, well, you know, uh, um, meet me every Sunday night at this motel and satisfy my desires and I'll make sure you get an A, you know, don't worry about turning stuff in. So she feels the pressure and yields to that temptation. She gets her A, but there's some students who notice she never turned in any work that they could see. Perhaps the reader leaks a little information or something. Finally, it comes out that this professor solicited sex for grades. So the university rises up, expels the student, shame on you for bartering with the professor, etc., etc. They throw her out and they do nothing to the professor. Are you going to be happy with the situation? Why? Because the instigator has not been dealt with, right? If God destroyed the evidence of our sins when he forgives us, he would have nothing to build a case against the devil. So when we're forgiven, we're forgiven, but our record is not purged because that data is needed for another case, not for re-prosecuting me. Hence, they're not blotted out. Maybe in a sense it's as if that folder gets moved from the Bauer pending to the devil pending, but there's still the record of Bauer's sin, but it's moved over to the devil's file to prosecute him. So that when the angel goes to my file, it says justified, you know. And yet, if you know where to dig, you can still find out what happened. It's not going to be until the devil's destroyed that all the records get burnt and no one can go dig up your past, right? So the scapegoat reminds us that the case is bigger than just me and my sins. That God has a bigger issue than just me and my forgiveness and my rebellion against him. There's another party who instigates it all, who shares culpability, and we need those sins that were held in the sanctuary, no longer on the sinner condemning him, but we need those to put on the head of him for his part in it so we can send him to the wilderness. So it's not double jeopardy. It's not that you're not really forgiven. It's that your data is needed for another case so we can't burn it yet, you know. Now, Leviticus 23 is where we um, come to the part of the affliction of soul. And here is where they're told, if you don't afflict your soul, you'll be cut off from the community. And I've already talked about that cutting off, right? This is why this is a day of judgment. Because those who don't participate in the protocol, receive the punishment of their sins. This is not a punishment for not doing the Day of Atonement. This is a punishment for not being repentant of your sin. And so you pay the penalty of your sin. You're cut off. You're not part of the covenant community. You're left to fend for yourself. Unblessed, unsupported. Hence, the feeling this was a death penalty. How are those, how do we know who's afflicting their soul and who's not? Here's the idea of God investigating the people to reveal who is who. And perhaps the story of Achan would give us 
an example of God coming to the priest or the prophet or Moses or somebody and saying, we got trouble, we got to deal with this. Because you have an investigative judgment in the Achan story. Somehow God would reveal so we could take care of this. And this is why we have this idea of a close of probation, because it determined your future destiny with the people of God. If I'm forgiven, why do I need to afflict my soul? I'm running out of time, but Ezekiel 18 talks about, so I'm going to summarize here. This is that great section where God says you don't get punished for your parents' transgressions, etc. But then he says, if you're a righteous man and do all these wonderful things, and then you turn away and you move to a life of wickedness, well, none of that righteousness will be remembered. You'll go down in your wickedness. And if you're wicked, but you repent and turn the other way, I won't remember the wickedness. You're in on the righteousness. And the point is, is that we are free moral agents who, even though we were forgiven in January, could choose to renounce the Lord in June. We don't believe in once saved, always saved, right? And so the sanctuary is looking at who started the process but walked away. Who's not genuine? And in Matthew 18, in the 10,000 talents, when the guy didn't adopt the spirit of forgiveness of the king, what happens? The king's forgiveness is revoked and he's thrown in jail till he can pay his 10,000 talents. We have this idea both in Ezekiel and in Matthew that if you turn away from God, your salvific standing and forgiveness can be revoked. Just like you enter a marriage, but if you are abusive or commit adultery, you can get taken to court and your marriage gets revoked, right? It's not the ideal, but it's possible. But if you have a good relationship with, you know, I have no fear of my wife taking me to divorce court. Yes, we have our disagreements, right? You know, but we've made a commitment and I trust that commitment. And while we have our ups and downs, we know where we're going. Okay. However, She's not a slave and I'm not a slave. Either of us could choose to be abusive or have an affair or something and do something toxic that would cause the other to act in judgment. So having that freedom is not an undermining of assurance if you have the right relationship. But the point is God recognizes that we have that freedom and so when we're forgiven now, that's not the final stamp that guarantees you're in, you're in, but you're not sealed in. But there's a point where he says enough is enough. You've shown you're sealed in, let's call it a day. And so the day of atonement is that final, did you finish what you started? Have you continued with me? Or did you start with me and go somewhere else? Not all who say, Lord, Lord, right, will enter. We've got to separate the fake Christian from the genuine. And that's what the judgment is about. Furthermore, the reason I afflict my soul is because I know how easily I deceive myself. And in Amos 5, and I'd like to read it, but we're short on time, so I'm just going to summarize again. This is the passage where the people are saying, we want the day of the Lord, bring it on. And Amos says, huh? For you, the day of the Lord is going to be darkness, not light. It's going to be like running away from a lion only to run into a bear. False assurance has been the bane of God's people throughout the eras. And like Laodicea, they think they're right with God when they're not. 
And so they're saying, oh yeah, bring on the judgment, I'm ready for it. Amos says, uh-uh, when you're that cocky, you're not ready. And so the affliction of soul is the expression of that self-fear. I don't fear the judgment, I fear my own self-deception. God, I know you're wrapping up shop, and I think I'm in good relationship with you, but I don't trust my own judgment. I'm afraid of me. I'm not afraid of him. And there are people that I know and love. I know their destiny is hanging in the balance, and I fear their ability to deceive themselves. This is a very solemn time. The good news is that those who are in proper relation to God will be vindicated. That's why we don't fear judgment when we're in right relationship to God. The problem is we can deceive ourselves about that relationship. And those who are deceived or outright evil, judgment's not good news, right? That's why this is such an awesome time. And so it's because of my ability to deceive myself and willingness to be self-deceived that I need the prayer of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and show me what I need to really know about myself. The most holy place experience then is going beyond the confession of conscious sin to say, God, what am I deceiving myself with at your time when I can handle it, make sure I'm not self-deceived. Open my eyes so I don't want anything to hinder my walk with you. If there's something that's contrary to your will and I'm ignorant of it, help me clean it out because I want nothing to hinder that walk with you. Most holy place isn't about scare, of God, it's about scare of self and asking God to remove those hindrances so that we have, we love Christ so much we want nothing between. That's most holy place. I believe we're living in that time where God is wrapping up things in this world and the Holy Spirit is striving less and less with the world and we see it spiraling down. That's the bad news. But in the parable of the talents, when the talent was removed from the guy who didn't want it and use it right, what happened? It was given to the one who wanted it and made use of it, right? And as the Holy Spirit stopped striving with man, those of us in the most holy place experience, God brings more and more. What the others don't want starts to fall on us more and more. May we have that experience of receiving more and more so there is nothing between us and our Savior that would hinder a glorious and beautiful relationship. I think we're done with our time, so let's have prayer. Thank you, Lord, for being with us. Speak to our hearts and help us have the Isaiah experience that we would not see you as someone, as a grandfather in the heaven who merely wishes we have a good time but that we would see you in your awe and splendor and surrender to your sovereignty and delight in your love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.